So here we are in uh, Matthew again. So open your Bibles up to Matthew chapter 24. We're continuing something that we have been working on now for a couple of weeks. Took a break last week. Micah filled the pulpit. I appreciate that. Had the privilege uh, last Sunday evening to be with Summit Bible Church for their Independence Day celebration. It was a wonderful and glorious event. And uh, we will be having a, a um, I still call it video, I don't know if that's the right terminology, but we will have a video uh, before too much longer uh, for you to watch together as a congregation here from uh, taken at that event and including uh, uh, some thank yous from Summit Bible Church for all of your hard work, prayer, giving, labor to help the launch of that Um, that ministry. That church is now an independent Bible church reaching North Fontana with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And and, uh, we can rejoice in that. It was a wonderful, wonderful evening. It was like like attending a wedding, uh, sort of, you know, when your child gets married and then then they're off on their own now. So it was really, it was really neat. But anyway, here we are in Matthew uh, 24. We're looking at verses 4 through 14, calling this Jesus' prophetic panorama, Jesus' prophetic panorama. In the study of a prophecy, I was trying to look for an analogy, and someone suggested this one to me, so I'll try it out on you. The study of prophecy is a little bit like Google Maps. And the basic idea is, is that you can, uh, you can look at Google Maps from a, from a really far-off perspective, and you, you, know, you, you see whatever protecting you're looking at, but it could include the state and the country and even the continent. Uh, but as you zoom in, you get more and more and more detail, of course, until they get right down to being invasive and where they have pictures of your backyard and, and uh, all of that sort of stuff. So uh, as we study Matthew 24 here, we're not going to get that close uh, because we will get lost if we do. And I preached a series called Things to Come Oh, I don't know, six or seven years ago, I think it was. And we looked at things in quite a bit of detail there. We took six months to look at stuff. And so I don't want to go back and re-preach that whole series. And so I can commend that to you. You can find that on our YouTube channel if you're interested. So we're going to take a little, little more far away perspective so we don't get completely lost. But we will look at detail for sure. So uh, you, you can figure out where we are. We're not as close as we're you know looking at your lawn furniture, but we're... Uh, we're not so far away that you don't know where you are, hopefully. So let me, uh, let me read it and put that into our, into our thinking. And actually, what I'm going to do is back up to 23 and verse 37 and get a running start at this. This is Tuesday afternoon, of course, after the confrontation of the prior two days, or Tuesday and Monday with Jesus and Passion Week. And now he has pronounced these just horrific judgments upon the nation. And he ends here in 2337 where he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together, the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you, from now on, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And Jesus came out from the temple and was going away when his disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to him. 
And he said to them, Do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another which will not be torn down. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Jesus answered and said to them, See to it that no one misleads you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, that is, I am the Messiah, and will mislead many. You will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened, for those things must take place. But that is not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And in various places there will be famines and earthquakes. But all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. Then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you. And you will be hated by all nations because of my name. At that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. Because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end he will be saved. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. A couple of weeks ago, when we were looking at this passage, and in particular, we were looking at verse 3, and in verse 3, we noted that the disciples asked essentially two questions. Coming off of Jesus' statements about the desolation of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple, conditioned by their understanding of Old Testament eschatology, that is, that which the prophets had appeared to lay out for them in terms of the, of the, of the destiny and the future of the nation of Israel, and in particular, the prophecies of Zechariah 12, 13, and 14, the disciples believed or thought that the destruction of the temple would mean the coming of Messiah and the establishment of his kingdom. And so they are asking him these questions. When will this all happen? When will the temple be destroyed? When will the kingdom come? And Jesus begins to answer their questions, but he answers them in a way they didn't expect. They didn't understand that there was a, a time period to, to, to in, the, in the plan of God that, that separated these events. That the destruction of the temple that Jesus is speaking of here in, in verse 2 was separated from the coming of his messianic kingdom by a period of time now nearly 2,000 years and counting. So he begins to answer their questions in a way that's unexpected to them. And he gives the answer to the when question we noted two weeks ago in Luke's account. In Luke 21, in verses 12 through 24. We looked at it there a couple of weeks ago, the last time we were here. And, and we're certainly not going to go back and redo that. But here, Matthew's accounting of what Jesus says, Matthew doesn't deal with that part of the answer at all, the, the when part. Matthew takes up the question of the sign of your coming and of the end of the age. Matthew concerns himself with relating that answer. 
Jesus spoke of the destruction of the temple, verse 2, an event that occurred in history, in space and time, in AD 70, when the armies of Rome, under the leadership of Titus, surrounded the temple, surrounded the city, breached the walls, entered into the Temple Mount eventually, sacked the temple, and burned it to the ground, dismantling it stone by stone as they went. These disciples, some of them would live long enough to witness that event. Some would not. But none of these disciples would live long enough to, to experience what Jesus speaks of here, beginning in verse 4 and running through the balance of the chapter. None of them would live that long because what Jesus speaks of is still yet future. It hasn't happened yet. It's still out there. And so Jesus' words to them become Jesus' words to that generation of believing Jewish people that are, that are alive at the time the events occur. He speaks to the apostles, he speaks to the disciples, but he speaks to them and through them to a future generation. Now that shouldn't trouble us very much because that's the way prophecy tends to work. In the prophetic calendar of God, he alone knows when events will come to pass. Jesus himself says later in the same chapter, no man knows when these things will occur, not even the Son, but the Father alone. And so there is always a sense for the people of God from every generation that we always live on the edge of eternity. We always live on the edge of eternity. Unfulfilled prophecy that could be fulfilled in our lifetime has always been with the people of God. It, it causes us or should cause us to, to live a life looking for and longing for the return of Messiah and the fulfillment of the end of the age. In fact, I would be so bold as to say that it is one of the distinguishing marks of a Christian is that they live with an eye to the return of Christ. It, it affects how we live. It, it, it affects decisions that we make. We always live on the edge of eternity. Well, this morning, what I want to do as we begin to look here at verses 4 through 14 is, is look at three facets. I'm calling them facets. Three facets of Jesus' prophetic panorama. So that we will not be misled. Notice verse 4. Jesus says, he answers them and says to them, he leads off with them. He says, see to it that no one misleads you. That no one misleads you. Because there are going to be things happening that could easily cause one to be misled. And so I think that admonition is good for them and it is good for us. See to it that no one misleads you in these areas. Be a, be a careful student of the scriptures. Allow the word of God to shape how we understand the end time events rather than the newspaper. Rather than some sensational uh, preacher who, who holds the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other and, and makes all kinds of interesting correlations. Let the word of God determine what we know to be true. 
So I want to begin with you this morning, and I want to look at first what I'm calling birth pangs. The first facet is birth pangs. Notice down in verse 8, he says, But all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. This concept of birth pangs is significant. It's important. In Jewish eschatology, that is in Jewish understanding of end time events, and it was derived from the Bible, from the Old Testament, there is, a, there is an anticipated time of suffering to come. You remember that John the Baptist says to the, to the scribes and the Pharisees when they come out to be baptized by him, he says, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the what? From the wrath to come. So there's a coming wrath of God, a coming time of suffering to come upon the earth. It is often called the day of the Lord. And it is, it is spoken of or was spoken of as the birth pangs of Messiah. The Jews would call it the birth pangs of Messiah. And the, and the, 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 the delivery pains, the, the birth pains that eventuate in the birth of a human child provide a perfect analogy for the coming messianic kingdom. Just as a woman will go through a period of agony prior to the birth of a child, so the world will go through a period of agony before the birth of Messiah's kingdom, before it comes into the world. And so this concept of birth pangs is very much found throughout the Old Testament in reference to this coming time. Now, I have never experienced birth pains, and nor have about half of you. But I have been told, on good account, by someone who has. And it is described as recurring spasms of pain, not subject to conscious control. They often result in fear, anxiety, screams, and groans. And thus it is a perfect metaphor, a perfect metaphor to to speak of the troubles that are coming upon this world prior to the advent of Messiah. And as a result of the judgment of God. Now, probably the classic Old Testament passage, one that I think Jesus undoubtedly had in mind as he is speaking to them, is found in Jeremiah chapter 30. And so I'm going to turn you back there to Jeremiah chapter 30, where the prophet Jeremiah, using the metaphor of birth pangs, speaks about a unique time of trouble to come upon the nation of Israel. Unique. That is, a trouble to come upon the nation that has never come upon them before. And I would say that Jesus has this passage in mind because back in Matthew 24, and we'll get back there in a moment and I'll show it to you, Jesus also speaks of a unique time to come upon the nation that has never come upon them before, nor will come upon them again. There only can be one unique time, otherwise it's not unique. And so they are speaking of the same time period. They're speaking of the same time period. And they are speaking of that time of tribulation yet to come upon this world and in particular upon the nation of Israel. Jeremiah chapter 30, we'll pick it up in verse 4. 
Now these are the words which the Lord spoke concerning Israel and concerning Judah. So we know right away he is speaking about the nation of Israel. And that's good because Jesus is speaking in Matthew 24 about the nation of Israel. Okay? All right, here we go. For thus says the Lord, I have heard a sound of terror, of dread, and there is no peace. Ask now and see if a male can give birth. Why do I see every man with his hands on his loins as a woman in childbirth? And why have all faces turned pale? I mean, ask and see. Can a man give birth? No. Then why are they all acting like they are in labor pains? Alas, verse 7, for that day is great. There is none like it. And it is, a, it is the time of Jacob's distress, or the old King James, Jacob's trouble. But he will be saved from it. The prophet Jeremiah speaks of a time coming that there has been nothing like it. And there will be nothing like it until it arrives. When the world will be undone. In particular, when Israel will be undone. Jesus here, in, back in Matthew 24, take a look at verse 21. He says, For then there, shall, there will be a great tribulation such as not occurred since the beginning of the world until now nor ever will. That speaks of uniqueness. It speaks of uniqueness. I'm persuaded that Jesus has Jeremiah 30. 6 and 7 in mind, as he is answering the disciples' question. Why? Because Jeremiah 30 refers to the same event to which he is now to refer. Now, as we're talking here about birth pains, there are a few observations, I think, that are worth making and help understand, help fill out our understanding of this future and coming time. Here they are. Number one, birth pains are unique pains. There are many pains in life, many troubles in life, but birth pains are unique pains, and thus they are ideally suited to refer to God's special judgment. The world has always experienced the pain of war. The world has always experienced the pain of famine. The world has always experienced the pain of disease. But the pain of this coming time, this, the pain of this coming tribulation, will be unlike anything the world has ever known. Ever known. It will be unique. Perhaps because of its intensity. Perhaps because of its worldwide uh, application. These are unique pains. Secondly, once birth pains begin, they don't stop until the baby comes. Once the pains of the coming age begin, they will not stop until Messiah and his kingdom is born into this world. There'll be no turning back. No Braxton Hicks, no false contractions. When the real labor pains begin, they will not stop. Third, Birth pains intensify as the time draws near. They get harder and harder. And as the book of Revelation lays out for us in chapters 6 through 18, 
once the pains begin, they intensify. In the beginning in the seals, followed by the trumpets, followed by the bowls. There's a growing intensification. Fourth, birth pains increase in frequency and become closer together as the time draws near, right? Contractions are five minutes apart. Oh, get in the car, go to the hospital. Well, they got to get a whole lot closer than five minutes before that youngin's coming into the world. The birth pangs of Messiah's kingdom will get closer and closer as they grow in intensity. What does that mean? I think what it means is, is that seven-year period that's coming, the initial pains, the breaking of the early seals, there will be time between them. Weeks, perhaps months even. But as the seals give way to the trumpets, give way to the bowls, and as you, as you study Revelation, what you see, you come to understand is that the seventh seal contains the seven trumpets and the seventh trumpet contains the seven bowls. And so what you see happening is, is that there's an increasing pressure and frequency and, 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 and uh, cataclysm that comes upon this earth eventuating in the birth of Messiah's kingdom. So birth pains is a perfect analogy. It's a perfect metaphor for the coming messianic kingdom. Now, it needs to be said, and this is probably good a place as any to say it, that there are a number of interpretive schemes to Matthew 24. I'm not going to take the time to go through all of them and give you the pros and the cons and all the rest of that. That would take a long time and would be better done in a training hour class on a Sunday morning at 9 o'clock someday. But I will just say this. There are some who, who believe that the events that are narrated by Jesus here in Matthew 24 have already occurred historically. That it's all in the rearview mirror. That the Roman destruction of the temple in AD 70 fulfilled all that was written here. It's called preterism for those who are interested. And it is an incorrect understanding. And I would say there are many reasons for that, but I'll give you just one simple reason. And, and it's this, that in verse 15, he warns of the, the desecration of the temple. And he says that those who are alive to see the temple desecrated... Verse 29 will be the ones who will see the return of Messiah and the establishment of his kingdom. Well, it's obvious that that has not yet happened. It is obvious that it has not yet happened. So the idea that this was fulfilled historically, I think, just doesn't work. There are others, and I would call this the contemporary view, there are others who see here in the early part of Matthew 24, and in particular 4 through 14, they see a, 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 an overview, if I can call it this, of church history leading up to the time of, of Jacob's trouble, leading up to the time of, of, of woe to come upon the nation of Israel. Folks who understand it this way 
would look here in verses 5 and 6 and 7 and 8 and so forth and, and see false messiahs and wars and rumors of wars and nation against nation, kingdom against kingdom and earthquakes and famines and so forth. And then they would tend to look around and they would say, see, see the coming kingdom, the, the coming tribulation is, is approaching these events. So for, for those who understand it this way, when, uh, when someone says, you know, what about these pandemics that are out here? Or what about all the problems that are going on in the Middle East right now? And we've got Russia, you know, arming Syria and, and, you know, all of this stuff going on. See, we've got nation rising against nation. And we've got, we've, we're talking about famines in different parts of the world. And there's these terrible pestilence and plagues that are growing and so forth. Isn't it true that the kingdom is coming closer and closer and, and we could see it? And I would say, yes, the kingdom is coming closer and closer because it's today and not yesterday. But I do not believe that what Jesus is giving here is an is a overall scope that allows us to sit down and, and uh, sort of take the newspaper and make those kinds of determinations. And for those who have that orientation throughout history, I'm sure that they could look to the events of their day. And find same things, earthquakes, famines, pestilence, wars. Why? Because there's been the history of the, of the people, uh, history of the human race up until now. So this popular view, this contemporary view, I don't believe it's right. Maybe I'll just say it this way. It's because Matthew 24 and 25 deal with the future of the nation of Israel. We just need to keep that in mind. This deals with the future of the nation of Israel. It is not about the church. That takes us to another point of view, which I call overview. Overview. They would see, um, really, verses 5 through 14 as speaking about the entire seven-year period of coming future tribulation. First half in, in verses 5 through 8 Second half in verses 9 through 14. So three and a half years covered in verses 5 through 8, and then 9 through 14, the the second half of the seven-year period. And that's, that's kind of an appealing interpretive scheme. The word then in verse 9, it's a time marker. Sort of stands out. You know, this will happen, and many will come in my name. You'll hear of wars, nation will rise against nation. All these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. Then they'll deliver you over to persecution and so forth. So, so it's an appealing approach. It's to see the, the, the entire seven-year period being, being outlined by Jesus in a, in a general sense. But I don't think it's right. Very appealing, but I don't think it's right. So at this point in... In history, I think that what we are talking about, what Jesus is talking about here in verses 5 through 14 is the first three and a half years of the tribulation. If on further study I become persuaded that's no longer true, then I will retreat to position overview and that it covers the entire 14 verses. So what I'm trying to say to you is, is this is not something that I would break fellowship over. But I think that what Jesus is talking about here in verses 5 through 14 is the seals of Revelation chapter 6. 
Now let's stop here and think for a minute. Jesus is giving an overview of what is coming upon the nation. And he is doing it in in a general sense, although he will get specific here in a little bit. But not within these, not within five through fourteen. He's speaking in, in a more of a general sense. John receives a revelation, right, in in uh, in the last book of the Bible, uh, the book of Revelation, that gives a lot more detail. It fills in a lot of the pieces. If we could use the analogy of a puzzle, I think Jesus is snapping in the the outline of the puzzle. He's putting the pieces in and defining the border. And it is John who will come later. Many years later, really, 60 years later, as it were, and and will fill in a lot more of the pieces. But we should expect that what Jesus says and what John says should comport with each other. They shouldn't contradict each other. They, They should comport. And so John's details should fit into Jesus' overall scheme. I think considering verses 5 through 14 as the beginning of birth pangs seems to fit well with what John tells us later in Revelation 6 in the breaking of the seals as these early birth pangs. Now, I'll turn you to Revelation 6 in a minute. A couple of things that I also want to observe here for you before we do turn to to Revelation 6, is here in verses 13 and 14, notice it says, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. He goes on to say, this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as the testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. What end? I believe he is talking about the tribulation, the end of the tribulation. All right? So he's saying that these things must happen, and then the end of the tribulation will come. Furthermore, I would suggest to you in verse 14, where he says, The gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, is a reference to what John elaborates in Revelation chapter 7, verses 1 through 8, where he speaks of the 144,000 Jewish evangelists that go out and preach the gospel of the kingdom there in the early years of the tribulation. All right, so proceeding forward under the interpretive scheme that 5 through 14 is a reference to the first half of the tribulation period, let me take you to another facet, which I'm calling breaking the seals. Breaking the seals. And what I'd like to do is, is um, kind of flip back and forth between what Matthew said, what um, Matthew records Jesus said, and what John records in Revelation 6, and show you correspondences between the two. But before I do that, we need to speak for a moment or two. In fact, well, let me do this. Let me, um, you figure out how you can remember where Matthew 24 is, but I'm going to turn you to Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5, we are introduced to... It's called a book, but a scroll would be a better name for it. It's a scroll that is written on the inside and on the back and sealed up with seven seals. An angel 
This is in the hand of, on the right hand of, of him who, who sits upon the throne that is in the hand of the Father. The angel says, who can open this, this uh, scroll? Who is worthy to open it, to break its seals? And there's no one worthy. And John begins to weep. One of the elders says to him, stop weeping. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. He who has overcome, has the right, has the authority to, to take this scroll and to break its seals and begin to unroll it and reveal its contents. And John sees, verse 6, between the throne and the elders, a lamb standing as if slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent unto all the earth. And he came and he took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And by the way, I believe what, what John is revealing here is additional details of the, of the prophecy that Daniel saw back in Daniel 7. And he takes the scroll, verse 8, and they fall down before him, right? And they, and they say, worthy are you to take the book, the scroll, to break its seal and reveal its contents. What is this scroll all about? What is it all about? Well, without taking a tremendous amount of time to develop this, what I would like to suggest to you is that this scroll is the title deed of the earth. It is the title deed of the earth. Now, now work with me. Follow me on this. God owns the earth. But he has delegated the administration of that which he owns, his land, if you will, first to Adam. We find in Genesis chapter 2 that, that Adam is placed in the garden, right? And he and then Eve are given dominion. They are given the right to rule, to administer the earth that belongs to, the, to God as his stewards. It is their role, it is their responsibility. But it doesn't take long at all before Adam messes up, right? We get to Genesis chapter 3. And Adam willfully rejects God's rulership over him. And in the process, plunges himself and the human race into sin and forfeits his role as steward over the earth, rule over the earth. It is illustrated probably most clearly in the fact that he is evicted from the garden. And the rule over the earth is now forfeited to Satan. It is forfeited to Satan. For example, in Luke chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, where Jesus is tempted by Satan... Verse 5, he that is Satan led Jesus up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, I will give you all this domain and its glory, for it has been handed over to me. And I give it to whomever I wish. I'd like to suggest to you that it has been handed over to me by Adam in his forfeiture. Satan is the ruler of this world. He is, a, he is a usurper. He is an interloper. It, it, it rightfully should be overseen by man. 
But Adam messed it up. And we live in the backwash of Adam messing it up. But there is a second Adam. There is a second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ. This second Adam recovers that which had been lost. That which had been lost. It is he who is worthy to administer the earth to the glory of God the Father. In Matthew 19 and verse 28... Jesus speaks of of a time called the regeneration. Matthew 19 and verse 28, he's talking to his disciples. They've left everything. They want to know what's in it for them. Jesus answered and said to them, Truly I say to you that you who have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. In the regeneration, that is in the new Genesis. In the new Genesis. When will the new Genesis come? It will come when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne. He will recover that which has been lost. The Apostle Paul refers in Romans 8, verses 19 through 23, he talks about the creation groaning, right? Uh, as it labors under the, the curse because of Adam's sin until the Son of Man is revealed and his people are revealed in glory with him and then the curse is lifted. Revelation chapter 11 and verse 15. It speaks of, it says, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he will reign forever and ever. That which Adam lost is recovered by Christ. Now think about the, think about the, the nation of Israel. Who owns the land of Israel? Is it the Jewish people? Or is it God? It is God's land. He says it over and over and over again that he owns the land and he allows them to administer it for him. That's why they couldn't sell it. That's why all they could sell was the number of years of productivity from a particular piece of land. And then it would be returned to its original steward. Because you don't own it. God owns it. And you administer it for him until you prove yourself unfaithful. And then he will eject you from the land, which he had done. When nation of Israel was ejected from the land, the interlopers came in. And they needed to be kicked out, as it were. Now this title deed, written on a scroll, sealed with seven seals, is a document, is a legal document. Land transactions both Roman land transactions and among the people of Israel, land transactions were documented by writing the contents on two scrolls. They would write the, they would write the, the, uh, the, the boundaries and the terms of the, of the particular land situation so that ownership could be proved. One scroll would be rolled up and kept. The other scroll would be rolled and sealed. 
And the seven seals just speaks of the, of the seriousness and of the particular document, how important it is. The sealed scroll would be stored in a safe place unless or in the event that the, that the owner of the land would somehow be evicted from the land and then the squatter would move in and they would need to come back and prove their ownership of the land. Somebody might contest their ownership. They would look at the open scroll and they say, well, yeah, but maybe that's not the real deed. That's not the real title deed. So then you would pull the sealed deed and it would be opened and it would be compared to the, to the unsealed deed and it would evidence your ownership of the land. Jeremiah 32. Jeremiah 32 occurs when the the invasion of the Babylonians is imminent. Verse 6, Jeremiah said, The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Behold, Hanamel, the son of Shalom, your uncle, is coming to you, saying, Buy for yourself my field, which is an Anatoth, for you have the right of redemption to buy it. Then Hanamel, my uncle's son, came to me in the court of the guard, according to the word of the Lord, and said to me, Buy my field, please, that is in Anatoth, which is in the, hand, in the land of Benjamin, for you have the right of possession, and the redemption is yours. Buy it for yourself. Then I knew that this was the word of the Lord. I bought the field, which was at Anatoth, from Hanamel, my uncle's son, and I weighed out the silver for him, 17 shekels. I signed and sealed the deed and called in witnesses and weighed out the silver on the scales. Then I took the deeds of purchase, both the sealed copy containing the terms and conditions and the open copy, and I gave the deed of purchase to Baruch, the son of Neriah, the son of Mahasiah, in the sight of Hanamel, my uncle's son, and in the sight of the witnesses who signed the deed of purchase before all the Jews who were sitting in the court of the guard. And I commanded Baruch in their presence, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Take these deeds, the sealed one of purchase, and this open deed, and put them in an earthenware jar, that they may last a long time. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Houses and fields and vineyards will again be bought in this land. So what I'm taking you there for is merely to show you that culturally this is how it was done. This is how it was done. So back to our revelation. The title deed of the earth belongs to Christ. It belongs to Christ. But there is an interloper who contests his ownership. That he must break open that sealed title deed to evidence his ownership, his legitimate legal ownership. And in the process of breaking it open, he will evict the usurper from the land. And so, we arrive at Revelation chapter 6 and the six seals. Each time a seal is broken, judgment is poured out. And I'm looking at the clock, and I'm thinking, not a chance. (laughs) So you'll have to come back. If you come back next week, I promise you, Lord willing, that I will show you the correspondence between the breaking of these seals 
and the events that Jesus speaks of in Matthew chapter 24, verses 5 through 14, as the, the um, beginning of the birth pains of the birth of Messiah's kingdom. Okay? So you come back next week because we need to sing and we want to celebrate the Lord's table together. And I've got so much more I need to say that it wouldn't fit anyway. All right? So I hate to do this to you. This is called a sausage sermon. Okay? If you understand how sausages are made, then you'll understand that reference. Let me pray while the, the uh, folks come up. Father, thank you for our time. And uh, there's just so much here to cover. And uh, even without trying to get lost in the details, Father, there are just certain things we need to know. And so may you uh, bless your word to our hearts. Help us um, where some of this is really new and, and unfamiliar to, to hang on and to struggle through. And Father, may you... Um, May you really bless us uh, through a, a better understanding of your word. Your word is true. In Jesus' name, amen.